Recovery Elevator, episode 92. But then something would happen, some party or someone visiting, and I would start again, and then it's like I never stopped. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 26 months and four days. On today's podcast, we've got Sarah. She's 37 years old, been sober for 163 days, is from New Jersey, and is a psychiatrist. And I want you guys to know, this isn't my best interview. Not on behalf of Sarah, she rocked it, but I was actually dumped via text message about 20 minutes before the scheduled interview was supposed to happen. And after we hear from Sarah, I'm going to talk about me getting dumped and how this is progress. Sober selfies. Yep. Send me a photo of your sober selfies. Get outside your comfort zone, be proud, and shred the shame. Doesn't matter if you've been sober for one day, 10 days, a year, or 20 years. Take a selfie. Send it to info at recoveryelevator.com. In the subject line, put sober selfies. Tell us your first name and how long you've been sober, and we'll get it on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page. You should be proud, and let's shred the shame. Big news, Recovery Elevator. I am so excited about this. I have a deposit down in Dates Book, August 24th to August 27th in where? Beautiful Big Sky Country of Bozeman, Montana for a recovery retreat. More details on pricing and when and how to sign up are to come shortly. But seriously, guys, do you remember that time at summer camp when we were kids? When? You didn't even think about the booze. Sure as hell didn't need it to have fun. Well, we're going to recreate this atmosphere in the forest, in the wilderness, take hikes, get to know each other. But most of all, this is a personal wellness retreat where you're going to learn tools on how to live life successfully without alcohol. This is non-12-step based, and again, Recovery Elevator has no affiliation with Alcoholics Anonymous or other 12-step programs. We will probably discuss 12-step tools, but this is really just a recovery retreat where you can learn tools of how to be successful in sobriety. Most importantly, what you're getting, I'm going to tell you right now, is the connections you're going to meet at this retreat. We're going to cap it at 35 people, so when registration opens, I encourage you not to wait. Okay, on to our topic for today. I'm going to lead off with what the fuck happened. I'm referring to the election. How in the hell did that guy Donald win? How were all the polls wrong? People were blindsided by the results. This podcast is not about politics. I want to make that clear right now. This podcast is about recovering from alcohol, getting sober and staying sober. But alcoholism played a part in this election. It played a bigger part than you know. I heard about this in a Fareed Zakara podcast probably six months ago. This election was a lot more than blue and red. I read some interesting articles in the last week, and you can go to recoveryelevator.com, show notes episode 92, to find links to these articles. But this election, it wasn't so much about blue states versus red states, blue counties versus red counties. Sure, Donald Trump, he had some racist undertones. Okay, undertones would be an understatement. It's tough to stand on a leg and say racism wasn't a part of his statement. However, it can be shown that for the people that voted for Donald Trump, racism was not the big underlying factor. It was that their way of life is dying. Their vote was a Hail Mary shot. It wasn't so much a Republican vote or Democrat vote. Donald Trump, he got both sides of the party. And again, like I said, it wasn't red state versus blue state. This was about the country versus the city. This is just like in Star Wars where Luke is the farm boy and the bad guys, they live in a shiny space station. This is just like Braveheart where William Wallace is a simple farmer. 
William Wallace goes against a dastardly prince shithead who lives in a luxurious castle and wears fancy foppish clothes. A lot of the people who voted for Trump, which has been shown that it was white male without a college education. These people, they're from a place where you weren't a man unless you could repair a car, patch a roof, shoot your own dinner, and defend yourself from an intruder. To be dependent on somebody was a source of shame. You mowed your own lawn, you fixed your own truck, and those leftover truck parts are probably still in your front yard. I'm not mocking that way of life at all. However, that way of life, it's gone. Bring back manufacturing jobs? That's not going to happen. In fact, in 15 years from now, we're probably going to hear bring back truck driving jobs. Seriously, about 3 million people are going to be out of work because we're going to have driverless trucks. But do we really want to bring back those truck drivers is the question. And that's the same thing with these manufacturing jobs. Now we see the rural folk with Trump signs in the yard that say their way of life is dying. And what the majority of us city folk think and are saying is, come on guys, what that Trump sign is saying that you are fed up with blacks and gays finally getting equal rights. Maybe there's a twinge of that in there, but in reality, it's a desperation vote. Their way of life is dying. And I'm actually going to show how alcoholism played a part in this. Okay, so it's basically white men who determine the outcome of this election. White men with traditionally not a college education. And again, go to recoveryelevator.com, episode 92 in the show notes, and you can find where we got this information. So between 1978 and 1998, the mortality rate for U.S. whites aged 45 to 54 fell by 2% per year on average, which matched the average rate of decline in the six countries shown as well. Those other countries would be France, Germany, UK, Canada, Australia, and Sweden. So after 98, other rich countries' mortality rates continued to decline by 2% a year. In contrast, U.S. white non-Hispanic mortality rose by half a percent a year. No other rich country saw a similar turnaround. This was a precursor to what happened about two weeks ago. What this means is about a half a million people are dead who shouldn't be dead. This is about 40 times the Ebola stats. We're almost getting up to HIV numbers. However, we're not even touching the deaths caused by alcoholism. Strange. So the reasons for the increased death rate are not the usual things that kill Americans like diabetes and heart disease. Rather, it's suicide, alcohol and drug poisoning, and alcohol-related liver disease. Hmm, interesting. And the least educated are worst off. All the mortality causes among middle-aged Americans with a high school degree or less increased by 134 deaths per 100,000 people between 1999 and 2013. But there was a little change in mortality for people with some college degrees. So in January, the CDC found that alcohol poisoning kills more than 2,200 Americans a year. Three quarters of them fall into the category of the people that voted for Donald Trump, aged 35 to 64 white men without a college degree. There's a graph in one of these articles that actually shows death caused by lung cancer is declining over the last 15 years. However, poisoning and chronic liver disease and alcoholism, those three lines on the graph shoot right up. This is incredible. Why is this so? Well, alcohol is one of the most addictive drugs in the entire world. Studies show it is the most addictive drug in the entire world. Might not be that difficult of an explanation. However, what exacerbates this perilous situation is the legit financial strain that a lot of these people face. There was a time where you could graduate high school, get a job, buy a car and a house, and be just fine in life. So nearly half of Americans in their 40s and 50s don't have enough money saved for retirement to live as they're accustomed to, even if they work until they're 65. All of this is crashing down, and the realization that they might have a rough retirement ahead, and that the American dream was somewhat of a scam? Yeah, they had a voice this last election, and they spoke up. 
And we aren't the only country out there to be faced with extreme financial straits. Other countries after the 2009 recession had equal strains placed upon them. In fact, many of them much worse. However, these other countries' pensions and retirements guaranteed they're still alive and working. That would be the safety net. Many of us have voted that we don't want those safety nets. The Affordable Care Act, Social Security, all that stuff. Well, we can't have both worlds. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So, now we got Donald Trump. And that guy, well, in my opinion, he's a dirtbag. And I think a lot of people who voted for him would say the exact same thing. It's going to be tough to explain to my kids one day that being a bully is not okay. Because when my kids one day see YouTube clips of him making fun of handicapped people, telling people they can't come into this country, it's going to be tough to tell my kids that being a bully is not okay. When a person in charge of this country, well, he's the damn definition of a bully. It's going to be tough to tell my kids that women deserve to be respected and not treated as objects. When the guy who just won the most important position in the entire world is a dirtbag with a capital D. And I think a lot of people who voted for him would agree 100% with me on that last statement. But he was a Hail Mary vote. And a Hail Mary worked. Whether his policies work, that's a totally different story. But alcoholism and alcohol poisonings are on the rise in these rural areas. All right, now let's hear from our interviewee, Sarah. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Sarah, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober for five months and 10 days. Let me do the math real quick. Sounds like 164, no, 163 days. Am I right on that? Yep. I'm just right. kidding. You told me before, 163 <laughs> days. Nice job. Congratulations. Like fast math. Thank you. Yeah. How does it feel? Oh, I feel probably better than I've ever felt. That's a common response. And when I say uh, it's probably has not been all just wonderful colors, tastes, smells, and experiences, right? Has it been difficult? Yes. Overall, it's been great, but that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges on the way. Overall, it's definitely been great. All right, I'm going to try to make a point here. So overall, it sounds like it's been great. However, it sounds like you had to put in some work, had to overcome some adversity to experience the great part of it. Am I correct? Oh, yes, that is absolutely correct. There we go. That's a big foundational pillar in life that really nothing comes easy and sobriety is not easy, but it's a blind leap of faith. And before we get any further, Sarah, let's hear more about you. Maybe tell listeners where you're from. What you do for a living? Do you have a family? And you know what kind of stuff do you like to do for fun? I'm originally from Louisiana, currently living in New Jersey. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm married, no children. Uh, what do I do for fun? Well, pretty much everything I do, I feel like I'm re-experiencing it in a sober way. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do for fun now, just doing everything I used to do while drinking but enjoying it sober. Give me an activity that you experienced while sober. For example, my first concert I went to when sober, it wasn't like, oh, this is boring. It was like, oh, my God, this, this music is incredible. And can you give me an experience that is different in sobriety? One of the first things I did sober was go, going to a Coldplay concert. No um, way. That was amazing because I could remember every single minute of that concert and that's exactly what I was referencing to earlier. We're just reliving everything, but remembering everything. How was the concert? Oh, amazing. Every single set was amazing. I also went to a football game recently, and that's also something different, going sober. And that was, I just felt every emotion so much more 
because I was sober. I just and downloaded I the album Ghost Stories by Coldplay. That song, Midnight, I mean, it came out in 2014, mm -hmm. but goodness gracious, it hasn't been since well, really every Third Eye Blind album that's come out that an album has really hit me like that. And it's, uh, yeah, Ghost Stories by Coldplay is fantastic. And yeah, can you think of another experience in sobriety that might not be as cool like the Coldplay concert for example when I got sober right you know at the bars around midnight it's not that cool you look around you're like wait a second how did I ever enjoy this these people aren't making any sense uh somebody just spilled nachos on my shirt this isn't that cool after a football game I went to I experienced that but then I just think to myself wow I'm glad I'm not that guy and I can drive home and get home safely and not worry about you know getting on the road Talk to me more about that guy. Well, I was that guy at some point, which actually led to my sobriety because of an, a near, very dangerous situation I had on the road, but ultimately actually made me quit drinking. I talk about affirmations on the podcast, but it is nice when mm -hmm. you do encounter that guy out at a bar, or it could be anywhere, and you're like, wow, I am making the right decision to not drink because I could be that guy, and I was that guy hundreds Of times now, Sarah. Yep. Let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Did you decide for the first time, 164 days to go, to quit drinking, or did you make previous attempts before that? I definitely made multiple attempts to quit drinking, probably starting two years prior to me actually stopping for this stretch. I tried reading this book that actually Deepak Chopra wrote called um, Freedom from Addiction and. Um, that actually got me going for a while, but then something would happen, some party or someone visiting, and I would start again, and then it's like I never stopped. I hear that. I started again, and it's like it never stopped. It picks up right where you left mm -hmm. off. And so 164 days ago, did you reach a bottom? Was it something significant that you that happened that caused you to quit drinking? Yes. I was, you know, hanging out with friends and went to happy hour and just Went then went on to dinner and it was just you know cumulative amounts of drinking. I was driving home. Unfortunately, in New Jersey, that's common practice, and I thought I was good and maybe I was. I'm not really sure if I was good or not, but it was a rainy day and I got in an accident. And luckily, no one was hurt. I drove home actually from the accident, but the whole night was a big blur and. I was just like, you know what? I cannot do this anymore. I have to stop drinking. I could just, I could sacrifice my life, my whole career. Everything could be lost with this stupid decision. And so I thought that I said that was it. Were there any legal ramifications? No, there was no other cars involved. There was, it was just me just running out to the side of the road. But it, I was just really lucky. So there was actually no ramifications. And that was my first time that was in this situation, and, and it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, Sarah, I got to give you props because I've driven my car off a road, and you know, if there's no cops, no ramifications, no legal trouble, I got out of it. I didn't get caught. But for you, I got to give you props because you drove off the road, you caused some damage to your car, but you could have told yourself, you know what, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. I don't have a problem with this. And you kept driving and kept continuing. But you recognized mm -hmm. that the conduit was there. It's only a short moment when that ability to quit drinking exists, and you did it. And mm -hmm. so what was it like? You just woke up the next day and you said, I'm done? 
the next day to the next week, I was kind of in like uh, a dazed and confused kind of state. I couldn't believe what happened. I didn't, I was, I, my memory was kind of foggy from everything and I was trying to piece it all together and I was just kind of self-blaming myself. How could I put myself in this situation? Everything in my life was going pretty well up other than that. And I was like, how am I, why am I sacrificing everything for, for what, for what? And I didn't have the answer. So I said, I have, I have to stop. It's not doing any good for me. And how much did you drink before 164 days ago? Talk to me about your drinking habits. My drinking habits were, I, I used to drink vodka, the little bottles, the little, um, air, plain size bottles is what I call them. And <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> I used to just, you know, because they're easier to just, you just kill it and then you throw it away and there's no evidence. And I used to do a lot of those just so that it's not as obvious in the household right after work, get a couple of those down, then maybe throughout the day. My husband, he drinks as well. So if he had a bottle, sneak some shots in here and there. So over time, that that usually, that kind of progressed worse and worse more and more and talk to me about the progression and over time we talking like a couple weeks here are we talking like a decade of one bottle turned into a hundred small mini plastic bottles that were just everywhere you know over time it went up and down i was never one of those people who have hey let's have a glass of wine or two at dinner if i had a glass of wine or two there will always be more drinking afterwards but over time those would be three, four drinks, three, four, five drinks, two, six, seven. And right before I stopped, it was probably six or seven, eight or nine. And it would just start earlier and earlier in the day. So for me, the progression was not, it was more the time of day I started rather than the amount. You said eight or nine glasses, that's about two bottles in a, you know, in a glass. So would you say you drank about two bottles of wine a night or a couple times a week? I was not as much of uh, a wine drinker, but I would definitely uh, have maybe a couple glasses of wine plus uh, three or four shots of alcohol. Gotcha. Now, did you ever try to put plans into place? Like, you know what? I'm only getting four mini bottles of vodka. That's it. I'm done after that. And did any of those plans work? Yes, multiple plans were set. No drinking on the weekends. I mean, sorry, weekdays, only on the weekends. And then it would be, okay, just after, maybe after all my work is done, right before, uh, right after dinner, before bed, maybe a couple, you know, then I would be like, okay, no hard liquor, just wine. One or two glasses of wine is okay. Things like that. Sarah, you, you know the adage that no question is a dumb question, but I'm leaning to the fact that that's a dumb question because I have done 91 podcast episodes. I've asked 91 people that question, and the answer is always the same. Yes, I tried a lot of rules, and none of them worked. So, nope. <laughs> yeah, it like you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, here's one that's going to work. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to drink again, but it's, it's normal to obsess about that stuff. Even if you've been sober for multiple years, 10, 20 years, there's still in the back of your mind the thought that one day we'll be able to drink normally. But the difference is, you know, we just quickly dismiss that thought. But yeah, again, yep, no one has ever found a way to drink normally if they have a drinking problem. So that could be a good test right there. And Sarah, what was it like in early sobriety? And so you're, you, you got sober. The first week was kind of a haze, you know, but things, the fog started to lift. What was it like the first week, the first month? 
like I said, that first week, I can't really remember much. But after a couple of weeks of not drinking and being put in social settings, I had a lot of family events that were happening, weddings, because this is the summertime. And a lot of things were going on where it was open bars. And so I had to really be put to the test about how I'm going to deal with this. And after I went through with it, went through all these weddings and all these parties without it, I was like, why was I even doing it to the first place when I'm having so much fun? Uh, I think I had that pink cloud that everyone talks about because I was really loving everything I was doing, you know, completely sober. And I was, I couldn't understand why I ever did it in the first place. And I was trying to make sense of why I tried to think about why I was doing it. So those first few months, I started doing all kinds of new activities, running. I bought a bicycle. I started biking, um, going to the gym more. I became more of, I guess, one addiction goes to the other. And I started being addicted to trying new things. That would be a Jim Carrey movie called Yes Man. <laughs> Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, exactly. Yeah, was, there, was, a, was there a program in place? You're a psychiatrist and you, you mentioned you work at a hospital. You probably know of a lot of resources that can help people get sober. Did you use any of those resources, a sponsor, AA, or you just straight up go on iTunes and listen to podcasts? I didn't go to any recovery programs. Even before that accident, I had started listening to That Sober Guy. Shane Raymer, great guy. Yes, exactly. But and that was so obviously I was contemplating this. And then for some reason I was looking for other podcasts and I saw your podcast and pretty much from my sobriety date around that time, I think maybe a week before I started listening to yours and your podcast became my program. Pretty much every morning I wake up very early while I'm like doing my morning routines. I have your podcast running. And that was pretty much my only recovery resource other than, you know, my own, you know, trying to get into fitness and starting new routines and things like that. Well, I got to say your only recovery resource, if it's willpower, which was my only resource for a long time in my story, that is exhaustible and finite. And eventually it ran out and I drank again. But even something mm -hmm. just listening to a recovery podcast, and there are some great ones out there. You know, Omar, uh, the Share podcast, the Bubble Hour, Shane Raymer, the Sober Guy podcast, even that stuff mm -hmm. is an affirmation that you hear daily. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that's what happens when I drink. So I'm, I'm not going to do it. But mm -hmm. listeners, I've met probably 10 or 15 of the 90 people that I've interviewed. I have not met Sarah. In fact, I got an email two days ago from Sarah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's a little bit more of a vetting process for the interviewees on this show. But I just got this hunch. You know, I'm like, you know what? Let's do this, Sarah. And so I'm going to read part of it goes, Dear Paul, it's taking me a long time to reach out to you, but today I finally got the guts to do it. I'm not sure I'm ready to share my story or not, but I'm ready to take a moment to thank you. You know what? I got to thank you, Sarah, for taking the moment to send that email. I am sober for five months and eight days today, and I owe it much of to the podcast. However, at this point, I feel very alone in the process, and I'm hoping to join Cafe RE. I am hesitant because I'm a psychiatrist and worried about people finding out stigma exclamation point. So I, I read that. I was like, you know what? Let's create some accountability and you're not going to feel alone because a for an hour we're chatting right now and about 5,000 mm -hmm. to 8,000 people are going to hear this interview and you're going to help a lot of people. And also the day after that, I saw, I saw Sarah joined up for cafe RE. So talk about getting outside of your comfort zone. I got to give you kudos and nice job, Sarah. Thank you. 
Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, and, and you know, you've done the heavy lifting. All, all I do, I, I just babble in a microphone, and <laughs> that's it. <laughs> if I'm, it's stories like this. It's your email, Sarah, that gets me behind the mic week after week after week because it's so cool to read the stuff people are listening. It's awesome. And let's talk about being a psychiatrist and why are you worried about people finding out? It's like I said in my email, it, there's people don't understand, and even a lot of my friends still don't understand. They think uh, alcoholic. They're like, do you think you're an alcoholic? I don't. You're not an alcoholic. You, what you, they see alcoholic as like the worst case scenario into like these these people who have no careers. They're just these bums or something. For some reason, that's the picture that other people have. And I guess part of me, is, even though I know, of course, I, I know that that's not what people are like. But I guess that's what I'm afraid people will see me as. I, I don't know. And I'm struggling with that stigma, even though I know that's ridiculous, you know. Sarah, and I've, I've done a podcast about this probably 10, 15 ago, where in certain professions, in fact, the majority this should be a tremendous asset. It should be on your resume. Hey, my name's Sarah. Yeah, I went to Yale, Duke, or whatever college you went to, but I've also been sober for five months and eight days. If it was an early sobriety, maybe not list that on the resume, but this should be a tremendous asset for you because I imagine you chat with people and try to get to the bottom of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And, I do. And what does that look like for you? Do you sit first face-to-face -face with people? I do. I sit face to face with people, most to the in the setting of a hospital because they're admitted for withdrawals, and they tell me about their struggles. And they, you know, most a lot of them have been through recovery, and then they fall. And I always keep telling them one day at a time. I kind of steal lines from you, Paul, and I tell them about your podcast because some people haven't found a recovery program that's worked for them, and you know. Some people do the AA and all these things, but I've talked about things that I've learned from your podcast and I give them resources because I know them because I'm going through it myself. And I feel like in that way, it's really helped me connect with my patients. Now, there's there's some professions I understand. You're like, hey, I'm a professional NASCAR race driver and I'm an alcoholic like that. That doesn't mix well, but I feel like. Hey, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm an alcoholic, you know, either profession, if you've been sober for months at a time, it doesn't matter at all. But yeah, have you told any one of these clients that's with you at the hospital, you're like, you know what? I went through this five months and eight days ago. Here is what I can tell from my own personal experiences. Have you shared anything with that? I have not. And that is something that I definitely hope, I hope to get to that point because I feel like in these last five months, I was struggling. You know, I always listen to your podcast and you always say, you know, focus on the similarities, not the differences. And so for me, that's, that's all, that's what I was trying to do. So I, even me coming to the realization that I have the problem, I'm, I'm just getting there. I hope to get to a point where I can be that open, even with my patients, but I have, I'm not there yet. <laughs> what do you think we're going to get there? What, what, what more do you have to do? Just out of curiosity. And there's no right or wrong way here. Right. I don't know. I think I have to just accept it more myself, maybe, and just let go of that fear of judgment. And hey, I, I'm oh. not judging at all because I understand this fear, this trepidation 100%. Before I did the podcast, okay. I was terrified. Um, I still own a DJ business, but when it first came out, I was like, you know, what bride and groom is going to want to book Bozeman DJ yeah, if they find out I'm an alcoholic? Little did I know 
that uh, two of the wedding planners up here in Bozeman, um, one of them is in recovery, and the other one, uh, I think their brother, their sister's in recovery. And guess what? All they recommend is Bozeman DJ. It's it's the strangest thing, and, and everybody knows somebody. Yeah, given like they don't want drunken Paul Churchill at their wedding, which I've done before, and I could always pull it <laughs> off. Yeah, they don't want that DJ at the wedding. But if, if they know that, okay, he's sober, it's, yeah, he's, he's gone through some stuff, he's human. Yeah, it's not a bad thing at all. I feel like... You know, if you come out with your patients that within time, your superiors or people you work with, you're like, wow, Sarah's really connecting with people. And I think promotions are on their way. I, I don't know. I just, I want to speed this process up for you because I think it's going to happen sooner or later. But what do you think would happen? Just out of curiosity, if, if you walked in tomorrow and you're your first patient, it's like, you know what? I'm an alcoholic too. Let's chat about this. What do you think would happen? First of all, with patients in general, when in psychiatry, we've always been trained that you never put any focus on you. But that being said, you always make exceptions if it will help with the rapport with the patient. And I think obviously in this situation, like you're saying, it will obviously help with the rapport. But what do I think they would say? I, I think you, I think you're on point. I think they would absolutely respect the fact that I went through it and I am going through it and they'll feel even more comfortable talking to me about it because I would understand because one of the things I hear the most, especially in the ER, is you you won't get it, you don't get it, you know, when, <laughs> when I start asking the questions about what happened, what happened since your last detox, you know, and then they start feeling the guilt and they just, they, they repeat, you don't, you won't, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it, Sarah. Oh, hey, you have a smartphone? Let me let me send you a link to my Recovery Elevator podcast. <laughs> that might help. <laughs> yeah. And how prevalent is alcohol and drugs in the emergency room or, or where you work? Oh, most of the ER is taken over by the people who are coming in intoxicated or withdrawing or looking for a detox bed. At least half sometimes it gets is, that bad. Is this from like 8 p.m. on or just like nonstop? Yes, definitely more so in the evening hours and on the weekends. And during the holidays, it gets a little even more. Gosh, mm -hmm. yeah. I just feel like you could just tap into this. Yeah, I mean, you were in like a gold mine professionally. Because I've seen this, and I've seen this there. I don't want to, I wouldn't encourage you to come out of the closet for say, if, if I didn't know the results. But I, I know personally, there's a couple addiction counselors and psychiatrists and therapists in Bozeman, and they're also in recovery. And guess what? It is really mm -hmm. hard to get an appointment with them. Who would figure? You yeah. Know, who, who who would have thought? But I chatted with one of them, and they said, "Yeah, as soon as I came out of the closet, I don't know a better way to say it, their career just yeah. like exploded. They couldn't. They don't have enough time in the day to see all these people." Well, that's also part of. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I think the first step for me was actually reaching out to you, but also I did have something behind my head. I feel like if I start taking these steps to like telling you was also a step. Because this is going to be in a public space, you know, you know, it's going out into a d digital world. It's, for me, it's a big step. And ultimately, I do, part of me feels that there is a way to, I want to connect with more people because I do feel like I can help more people too, you know. And I think just taking this step is a step towards me, you know, coming out of the closet, as you would say. <laughs> and Sarah, I, I got to pat you on the back and I'm getting way ahead of myself. Because here's what I thought was going to happen. I read your email. And I said, hey, Sarah, awesome. Let's do an interview. And here's, here's a promo code to Cafe RE. 
I thought I would never hear from you again because that happens a lot of times. And I understand it's getting outside your comfort zone is hard and the stigma. It's terrifying. There was a time that I probably, Hey Paul, do an interview on this podcast. I probably would not have responded either. So I got to give you a huge pat on the back, Sarah. I'm proud of you. You should be proud of this too. And I hope you share this interview with, uh, with your friends and family and, and, and Sarah, how do you stay sober today? Walk me through a day in the life of Sarah. How do you do it? Well, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I kind of do my like yoga. I, I just started meditation, kind of go throughout, plan out my day. Sometimes it starts off with a workout. Sometimes I leave the workout in, at the end of the day. I go to my work, come back, and then I do my evening routine of either working out or another set of meditation. I usually have something planned at the end of each day, whether it's some quality time with friends or I mentioned working out or tennis lessons or something new. I've always tried to incorporate something new. Right now it's tennis and next after that it's going to be taekwondo or something, but I'm trying to do something new every every few months so that I can continue to grow and bring more happiness to my life. And so your next milestone is six months in sobriety. What is on your bucket list in one year sobriety and then a bucket list in sobriety after one year? My bucket list for sobriety. Yeah, that was a confusing Hmm. question. Two things. (laughs) What would you like to achieve in one year sobriety and then what would you like to achieve after one year sobriety? And let's not get ahead of ourselves. You can be like, hey, Paul, I don't even want to think about one year. We'll We'll just answer the first one. Okay, I'll I'll do the one year. After one year, I hope that I'm more involved in the sober community because I've mentioned to you before, I, I, I don't have any support or I'm not involved in any community until I just joined Cafe Ari, but I, I, that's something, that's a big goal of mine. I, I need to expand my, my community of more people like me and you. And you're doing it right now. I mean, congratulations again. And uh, another question is, what have you learned most about yourself in sobriety, Sarah? That I don't need alcohol to have a good conversation with people or have fun with people. That I'm okay just being myself. How does that feel? That, that to me, was has been the most intoxicating thing about sober. Uh, about being sober, just everything is just as great or it's even better without it. It's a great feeling knowing that, Hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go buy a round of shots. Yeah. For the pocketbook and just how you feel the night of and the day after. And it's right now, I think Mm -hmm. it's October 26th. This should come out mid November. What's your plan for the holidays to stay sober, Sarah? Are there any events in the holidays that you're worried about? Maybe a dinner with the family, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner. What's your plan? You know, I thought these kind of things would be so hard, and luckily for me, so far, any we we have a lot of family events, a lot of family dinners, a lot of awkward interactions with people I don't really like, and <laughs> and before that used to be my crutch, and in the last five months, I'm still in doing the same things I was doing before, but without it, and it's almost like I don't. I don't even think about it anymore. I like I automatically look for the non-alcoholic drinks, and it's been great. So this is going to be my first holidays without it. So 
I imagine I should be able to just do it the way I've been doing it now because I don't even look for it at parties anymore. I do miss the occasional glass of wine here and there when everyone else is having it. But other than that, I always just have a beet juice and I make sure people fill it up in a regular wine glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I used to miss the uh, the wonderful antioxidants, anti-aging properties of a glass of wine. And then I just had uh-huh. some blueberries and grapes. Yeah, just without the wine. Yeah. <laughs> Got the mm-hmm. same results. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. I love it. And Sarah, what was your worst memory from drinking? Worst memory from drinking is the night of the car accident when I couldn't remember what happened. We've all heard of the aha moment, Sarah. Did you ever have an oh shit moment besides the car accident? An oh shit moment indicating, oh man, I can't control my drinking. Yes. Uh, I've had a lot of oh shit moments and they all involve me waking up and knowing that having that gut feeling that I did something stupid and just not remembering it. And next question, Sarah, what is your favorite resource in recovery? And it could be a different podcast besides Recovery Elevator. And that might not even be your favorite, but I want to hear something different if it is. Nope. Recovery Elevator is my favorite. <laughs> Damn it. I will PayPal you the money. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> what, what, other, what other podcasts do you like? That Sober Guy. That's the only other one I've listened to in the recovery world. Gotcha. Try that Bubble Hour podcast. I know it's it's okay. uh, four gals, three, four gals chatting. They're all across the world. It's a good one. And then I'll do it. Let's uh, yeah. In regards to sobriety, Sarah, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice is taking it one day at a time and just getting through each day, each moment, and not looking too far ahead. I got some advice too for everyone listening. If you take that principle one day at a time and apply it to your whole life and not just drinking, it's God, it makes things a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. I agree with you. And Sarah, let's give back. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? I think that people need to stop trying to define if they're an alcoholic or not. I think people spend way too many thoughts trying to figure it out if not drinking makes your life better just do it because of that hey it's that simple it really is great advice and before we depart sarah give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line you might be an alcoholic if your idea of dieting is doing straight shots instead of mixed drinks (laughs) oh i love it uh, Sarah, I got to tell you, you're way ahead of the game than when I was like, Hey, join cafe. You want to do an interview? Yes. And yes, you are going to kick some major butt in recovery. I'm excited for you and keep in touch. We are going to have that retreat in Montana next year at a weekend treat retreat up in the mountains. It's going to be fantastic. I hope to see you there, Sarah. That sounds awesome. Yep. Thanks Thank for joining so us. Before we talk about me getting dumped, let's hear from cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. 
If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. In Recovery Elevator, episode 67, I talk about my fear that I am not able to form relationships, how alcoholics are selfish people. I talk about how it's more difficult for us in general to form lasting relationships. I'm not talking about with just females, a girlfriend or a wife, but also with males. It's something that I've struggled with a lot, mostly because it's difficult for me to be in the moment and also because, hell, I'm a selfish person. And to be able to give myself up to somebody else, that's something that I've struggled with. But I got dumped. Yeah, this is great news. The timing could have been better. And hell, it was a text message. I think that's a pretty good indication that that's not somebody who I want to be with anyways. But it came about 15 minutes before my interview, and it totally rocked my world. It didn't rock my world because it surprised me. It's because that no one wants to get rejected. It hurt. Hell, it still hurts today. And I saw it coming. I did. But in the past relationships that I've been in, any indication of a red flag, any indication that I might possibly be hurt, I pieced out. I left. I didn't put myself out there. I wasn't able to be vulnerable. I wasn't even allowing myself to be hurt. And about every day before that text message came, I wanted to call this gal and say, look, this isn't working. It's not going to work. However, I rode this one out because there was a possibility, the chance, the hell Mary vote shot that it would have worked, but it didn't. And that's okay. This gal, she was great for about two weeks of this three month relationship. It was wonderful. I've heard and read the honeymoon phase is supposed to last a little longer than two weeks, but it was pretty cool and also unfair that life dangled a carrot in front of my face and took it away after two weeks. Damn you. I'm just kidding on that one, but it's something that I want. And getting dumped, it's never fun. Getting dumped via text message, well, that's the instant justification that that relationship wasn't going anywhere in the first place. And what I've learned doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is when I get dumped, when I feel these negative emotions, I want to lean in to those emotions. I'm going to feel them. I'm going to embrace them. In fact, I know I need to sit with those emotions and not look for an alternative to get past those emotions. I got to go through it to get to it. One cool part about this is a drink was not an option. I resorted to exercise. I called a lot of people. I prayed. I prayed for myself. I prayed for this person. I prayed for my standard poodle, Ben. Not really sure why, but it came through my head. My recovery elevator, I got dumped. And that is a good thing because I'm moving forward. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>